Yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Walter, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Walter. And I want to thank God for my abstinence. Always begin and my recovery. And May, thank you very much for um, um, asking me to speak. Um, she'd asked me to speak and said, you know, Walter, you're going to the birthday party. And I said, no, I'm not, so I'd be happy to speak. And uh, then I got called to speak down there. So, you know, it's... And I have a lot of friends. I have a lot to be grateful for uh, in this program because food was the son of a gun for me uh, just to qualify, and then I'll work back and forward and all over. I had a top weight of 280 pounds. Before that, I had a top weight of 269 pounds. And I had vowed I would never exceed that 269. <laughs> and so I'd like to say that uh, lack of power is our dilemma. And, uh, and I love being in this room. I really like wherever I see the steps and traditions hung and, and these slogans and stuff um, because that is the program. While 12-step programs are, share the dynamics a lot, like group therapy, it's really not. It's about the steps, which is a very personal journey that you need a, a sponsor to work with and a higher power, and there's a big difference there. I'm also a recovered alcoholic, and I'm going to need to talk about that because it's impossible for me to really extract my programs because uh, if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't be in this room um, <clears throat> because I was very ashamed of being heavy, and I, I'm, I'm a typical male. I wanted to look good in front of women, you know, and, and so for me to be sitting here now and sharing that is just, if you told me that in the height of my eating, I just said that's impossible. But because of what happened to me, uh, being relieved of the alcohol obsession through the steps, I, I just, it was just a miracle. And I want to say higher power is, is endless in terms of, of what I think the struggles this higher power will take away from us. I don't know how to measure that except by my experience, and I've had alcohol taken away, and I'm telling you, if that's all that was taken away, I was way ahead of the game. Then next was a three-pack-a-day addiction. That was taken away, and that's when I got back into the, into the food. <clears throat> but my first, uh, I pulled a geograph, so I'm sober 16 years. In fact, I got sober November 23, 1986 got off of uh, nicotine in August of 89. The only birthday that I ever solidly remember is, is the AA birthday, because that was huge. Uh, and then I got into OA in 91. And uh, it hasn't been perfect until these last four years. And I'm not going to say perfect, but I stopped quarreling with the tools. I got a sponsor and, and all that stuff. And Melinda, welcome. Uh, you're most welcome. And just uh, sit back, relax keep coming back. I don't know if this is your first uh, foray into a 12-step program. If it is, you're hearing a lot of strange language and, and all that, but just trust the process uh, because it does work. It does work. So uh, my first recollection of a, of a, and I didn't know this then, but uh, when I was I know, four, five, six, seven, I, in, back in Bayonne, New Jersey, originally from Connecticut, one of my aunts gave me a pair of boxer shorts, and I started crying. And uh, I was really, I wouldn't accept the gift. And uh, because the message to me was, it was I was fat. You know, no one said that. It was not on the shorts, but that's how I internalized it. And in fact, I met a, a, a girl in college who liked boxers, and I wouldn't wear them. You know, you know how you get in a relationship, they wouldn't give you the gifts. And I was like, not me. Even in college, I thought that that was, you know, I wouldn't wear them today. 
It's kind of funny how that is. And, you know, and I, my, my parents both were uh, compulsive overeaters and there's alcoholism. So I think I'm not a parent uh, today. I, I think somehow I got those feelings from my parents. I just, where else did I get? I, I wasn't getting it on television. You know, Mickey Mouse wasn't saying, you're fat. I mean, um, so, and, and, you know, that really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But what does matter from that experience was it began a tape in my head. You're fat, you're fat, you're fat, you're fat, you're fat. And a piece of literature that I like to read, which is not related to this program, but the information is related, it says, as our mind goes, our life goes. So it's very important. What I've learned through the 12 steps, it's all about changing our mind. And I know a very good therapist. She says, you know, Walter, and it's, I guess this is documented. I'd love to read this study. She says, the damage from compulsive overeating or any eating disorder, it's far greater the mental anguish that the sufferer does to themselves than the actual physics on the body, you know, whether you're overweight, underweight, it's what we do, and I believe that today. So, you know, I just, like a normal kid, I got moving on with my life, and, and that story was never forgotten, and uh, I was pretty normal, pretty normal weight. I remember sixth grade, I was heavy. There's a picture of me um, in, in a school picture, and I was heavy, and I, this may be legitimate. It was a heavy stage, I was told. And then seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I was I was normal, and I was I was involved in sports. A um, couple of things. Another thing that didn't help my self-talk was being left back in second grade. You know that was, and I saw my peers going on, and that was, you know, and that 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 really comes later into my inventory. Um, got through that, and uh, it was about ninth grade. Um, I wasn't really interested in school. I was interested in being with the, the fast crowd, you know, the party scene. That's exactly what I wanted to do. And I started smoking, thinking about drinking. It's tough to drink when you live at home, um, but we did it. We used to steal the booze and go on little campouts and got caught there and, and you know, just wanting girlfriends and all that. And I thought that the people were um, that were good students or that stuck to hobbies and things like that, I thought that they were the, the losers. You know, and I don't know where I got this plan for living, but it was all mine, and I was very willful. And uh, my parents decided to send my brother and I to a uh, strict Jesuit school because they didn't want us to go to the public school in Danbury, Connecticut, to keep us from the uh, drugs and alcohol crowd. <clears throat> and I wasn't on that campus at Fairfield Prep. I don't know if I should say this on the tape. It's a very good school, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't on that campus uh, two or three days, and I found the drug and alcohol crowd. And I also found out that Jesuits and certain lay teachers also like drugs and alcohol. And all. The world's very different, you know, as we leave home. <laughs> very, very different. And, uh, but I, you know, I, so I somehow got through school. And uh, But I, I remember I used to medicate on the way home. I would always stop, and I had to get hamburgers and stuff. And uh, the, the it was a great school. I'm glad I went there because I really do like to learn and read them. Um, but it, the problem was commuting. It was 35 miles each way. And by California standards, that's nothing. By Connecticut standards, that would be like going from uh, here to Santa Barbara every day from school, you know, taking the, taking the roads. Connecticut is just a much smaller state. And so I would eat hamburgers to medicate. And I didn't have that word. Um, and my father had a nickname for me called Wimpy, 
and he just didn't, you know, he just didn't know how to guide me or whatever. He knew what I was up to because he was a compulsive overeater himself. But looking back at that, I can remember that doing inventories. Why was I doing that? Why was I eating that in the middle of the day, in between lunch, going down to the cafeteria? You know, that was a big deal. There wasn't cafeterias in the public schools in Connecticut where I was from. There are now, but back then it was a very, very small rural town. So it was a big deal for me having a cafeteria, you know, and I just remember the food was just a big thing. I've stolen lunches. And I, I remember doing that and eating someone's food, and I just thought I got a little thrill out of that, that I got away with that. And when I look back at that now, I mean, I was a young person, and I'm not going to hang myself for doing that, but how ruthlessly selfish that is, you know, that I would just do that, take that food, and let someone be hungry the rest of the day and sit in the class while they're really, really upset about that. And that's, that's just how selfish that I could be. And, again, at the time, I didn't think so. You know, but those types of things ambushed me into addiction later on, as I found out. So, you know, I, I and I, I wasn't a complete blank. You know, I wasn't a complete zero. I uh, did okay in school enough to get through and get into college. Um, I was on the swim team, but not good enough for JV. Uh, I smoked when I swam. But I perfected these skills of, of just getting by. And it's like what the 12 and 12 says, our various and sundry ideas of getting by. You know, I created the standards in my mind of what I should be doing. And, and, and ultimately, it didn't work. It didn't serve me. You know, and it took me a long time to, to just deal. And, and one of my mantras today is just to live in a reality now. What, what, what's really going on? Why am I in this meeting? What am I doing? What am I really doing? What are my motives? You know, what am I thinking right now? What am I up to? And it's like I heard a woman share today at the birthday party, checking my intentions. You know, are my intentions matching my actions? You know, are my intentions, are they selfish and, and all that stuff? And I was, I was just clueless. I used to just think if I could get away with it, it was no problem. So I get through uh, school, and, uh, and I'd had my heavy phases on the other area. I did have girlfriends here and there, but I was never, I mean, not that you should, you know, I don't, I don't say this sounds funny, you shouldn't be a superstar like, I, I don't think it's any great thing to say you had hundreds of girlfriends, but successful relationships. You know, any of my relationships were always based in jealousy, control, fear, or games. You know what I mean? I never really had a mature relationship with anyone, you know, until I started getting into recovery. And uh, But I'm glad for the experiences that I had because I wasn't a complete blank slate, you know, on it. So I had some skills in that area. And I got through, uh, got into college, and I remember getting to college, and I was, I was heavy. The summer before I went to college, I went with a uh, uh, work construction, and the the uh, the thing to do at the end of the night was drink a case of beer, and that put a ton of weight on me. I think I got into college about 230 pounds, and my weight—I remember my weight always. If I got up to 230, I knew I was pretty heavy. 215 was like a fighting weight for me, but I always wondered. I said, "How do those guys get in shape and stick to those things?" and And I used to have old, and I love this is another thing we learn in recovery about getting rid of old ideas. Uh, and I always thought if I were smart enough to have gone to Yale or if I had gotten played football, I, I wouldn't have had problems with these addictions. I just assumed that those things would make, make you elite and above those problems. And I've since to come to realize in addictions, it doesn't matter whether you're from Yale or jail. And, and I've known some stellar athletes that don't look like that today. And I'm not judging them. It's just the nature of addiction. And uh, but it was it was just it was just tough. And when I got to college, I got to see that the disciplined people really had a healthier life, and you know we just a lot freer about things than I was. So I got through college and got into the work world, and I was nursing um, 
uh, my addictions. And all that was really uh, presenting a problem in my mind was the alcohol. But uh, there was a strong argument I probably should have been yanked out of school instead of limping through, which I did. And I worked my way through it and you know, just didn't got into the work world. And uh, it wasn't until I got into sales and I got introduced to uh, cocaine, and I thank God for cocaine because that probably sped me up. I might still be out there drinking right now if, if I didn't get into cocaine. I could still be on slow burn at that crazy place I went to, Nellie Green's there in Brantford, Connecticut. And, uh, and that was it. And I pulled the geographic, and my bottom was uh, January of 1984, and I was back in Stamford, Connecticut, and you want to talk about being shut down. I was smoking three packs of Marlboro a day. I, had another, I always had an off-again, off on-again thing with cigarettes. And I was 269 pounds, though. I didn't know that. If someone had said to me, what do you think you weigh, Walter, at that period of time? I would have said, oh, probably about 235. And it wasn't until I got into a detox out here and I got on the scale, I was just astounded. So I was 269 pounds, the heaviest I had ever been in my life smoking three packs of Marlboro days, uh, snorting cocaine, and drinking. And, I mean, you wanted, I was shut down. I mean, I was just shut down on all levels. It was just unbelievable how I did that to myself. And the reason I came out here, I had family out here. All of my family had migrated out here from Connecticut, and I had a brother who's a, uh, a very good Al-Anon, uh, very concerned about his big brother's drinking, and he got me into a couple of detox programs out here. And the first one, the first one, um, the, the premise of it was uh, to get off uh, drugs and alcohol through sweating and taking vitamins and all that stuff. And uh, I'll tell you the truth, all I cared about when I got out here was how heavy I was. So I did whatever I had to do to get the family off my back. Cocaine did go away. It's the only addiction that scared me off it on its own. I, I, that was just really uncanny because I loved cocaine, but... I, I just gave that up on my, it just went away. It was just, I guess the obsession to, to do cocaine was taken away from me. And when I got out of that detox, I started, I went on my own, again, my own plan, my own diet. Uh, one can of tuna fish, two pieces of whole wheat bread, and uh, Brussels sprouts, an apple, and a bunch of coffee. And I was smoking then. And I went down to 184 and uh, became eligible again to attract a woman, and I got involved with a woman who had a daughter, and five weeks later that was over because she didn't like the way I spoke to her when I when I was drinking, and I got to tell you, I can't blame her. And that was it for me. I said, you know what, I'm sick of this. this I'm sick of losing. And this is when the miracle began, and I got into AA. And uh, this is another thing I'd love to share. I was about 22 days in AA, and patience is not a virtue of mine. I'm still working on that. And when I realized she wasn't coming back, I went out. And uh, 22 days, I, you know, I just think about that now. 22 days to me is like lighting a match, you know. It's like, um, but what had happened in those 22 days that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous and the same thing that happens here in Overeaters Anonymous, it ruined my drinking. I could not get drunk. Physiologically, I could get drunk, but I could not go into my fantasy land. And that was, I was in trouble then. That's a bad place for an alcoholic to be. So I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and then the next miracle that happened to me is that I went on a retreat. And uh, that's where the old ideas started to get stripped away. And uh, where that's where I definitely was connected with. It doesn't care whether you're from Yale or jail. And back to my Yale story, my sponsor, my first real sponsor, um, he gave me a tape by this guy, Sandy Beach, and I'm a real big believer in tapes. Um, and Sandy Beach 
he, he went to Yale. And not only did he go to Yale, he was a Marine pilot, fighter pilot. And he was an alcoholic. And I just couldn't understand that. I said, my God, he went to one of the greatest institutions of the world. He's a fighter pilot. And he's a, he lost it all. And that was very, very, you know, not, we don't benefit from other people's misery, but we connect here. We say, wow. And I got to hear that that person could put his life back together, and that was a miracle that I heard that. I, I just I'll never forget that. So these steps work, you know. And like I said, three years later is when it was time to start moving on. Oh, and also I'd like to say this about a therapist I saw. When I first came into uh, the 12-step programs, I saw in step three, you know, turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. I said, you know, that's a, that, that can't be so. Uh, not for me, because my case is different. I was an altar boy. I'm a Catholic, so I went and saw a therapist. And the therapist said, and I'm so grateful that I ran into this therapist, said, Walter, the only one that handles addiction is God. And that was, I was like, Jesus, this person's got an MFCC. Why would she say that? Well, she said it because it was true. She thought it was true, and it turned out to be true for me. And I'm glad she told me that, and I'm glad I went there. It saved me a lot of time. So I like to do things, and I saw these mountains, and it was time to get off cigarettes and hike and mountain bike and all that stuff. And, or those were my aspirations, and I ended up doing that. And, uh, but I had to give up cigarettes, and I knew, where do you give up cigarettes? 12-step program. I went to Nicotine Anonymous, and this is where the food comes in. You know, I always knew, or somehow for me, I've seen people quit smoking and not gain an ounce. You know, with me, it's, boy, I gained a lot of weight. And remember my vow, I would never go back to two, be above 269 pounds. Here I am, I quit smoking 195, and I can't tell you why I went from 184 to 195. These are just things I could never put together, you know. And uh, I finally had to say, if I gain a thousand pounds, I'm quitting smoking. And I trusted the process. And I didn't gain a thousand pounds, but I went from 195 to 280 pounds in sobriety. I won't tell you that's pretty painful, <laughs> you know. I mean, I was taking up two of these chairs in an AA meeting, and you know, in AA they don't want to hear about the food thing. They just don't. And uh, what I had to learn in AA was I was asked. I had a sponsor, a very good sponsor, this guy Bob, who's a God and step man. But his idea for the food was a, first it would be, quit pigging out. Just quit pigging out, you know. <laughs> and then the next thing was, all right, lack of power is your dilemma. That didn't work. <laughs> I went to Nutrisystems. And you know, Nutrisystems worked. It did. I lost the weight. But then I lost my father and I put the weight on. Or I lost the account and I put the, you know, and when I was standing on the scale, they weren't asking me, are you jealous? Are you afraid? You know, and those are those. You know, if they added those that process to their program, it would it would really be very beneficial. And maybe they do today. I don't know. It didn't work for me. So what I finally had to do was, you know, here's my AA tribe, and when I go to AA, I just talk about, you know, the nonsense, the drinking. You know, I'm I'm kind of uh, very. Uh, black and white about AA. I'll listen, I'll, listen to the, I'll listen to what a wonderful world it is for a couple, two or three years, but if you're still talking about the booze, then it's like I said, you know, what do I want, a cookie for giving up something that was going to kill me anyway? See, the real, what I think was the biggest challenge was, was in Overeaters Anonymous, you come in really dealing with, with core emotions, you know, and this, is, this really takes a surrender into the steps, and I'll never forget it when I got to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting, the level of sharing just blew me away. I mean, that word intimacy started to really mean something, you know. And I'm not knocking AA, but, but and I've been all over AA conventions and everything. They're just, in my view, uh, the level of sharing and the recovery is just, I, I was, didn't get what it, until I got what I got here in Overeaters Anonymous. 
So I got sober, and that was a miracle, and that gave me the clarity to start working this program. And I just stopped talking to the other guys. You know, I mainly hung out with guys in, in uh, AA, and I got into OA, and that was the miracle. And what happened for me there was they weren't saying, get on a scale. Uh, they weren't telling me I had to have a goal weight. That My absence became three meals a day and nothing in between. And I liked that. And I reported OA, 280 pounds. Uh, the next thing was I was given an inventory, food, do a food inventory. And let's see, I'm 48 now, and I got into OA, 91. I don't know, what was I, uh, mid-30s. And um, I didn't know how to eat. I did not equate, you know, pizza was real fattening. I didn't get that. And so what I was given was this food inventory. Uh, binge, gray area, clean. And I could figure that out. And a word that was really clutch that was given to me here in, in OA was trigger. What are your trigger foods? Now, I knew what a trigger was from being an alcoholic. One Heineken, I'm gone. You don't have got no idea where I'm going to be later tonight. You know, so I got that. And I said, wow, trigger. I eat an ice cream. In fact, I'm, you know, this would happen to me tonight. I, you know, if, if I have a Guam fellowship and, you know, people can eat ice cream, I can't. I have a cup of ice cream. I'll act like a gentleman, but all of a sudden you'll see me getting fidgety. If you're really observing me closely and just follow me. I'm going to 7-Eleven, then I'm going to Bonds, and it's just, it's like starting that chainsaw, you know, kaboom, I'm gone, and that's a trigger. And those are the foods of bottom line abstinence for me or things like that. But, so that happened. That, those were boundaries, and I started hiking, and I lost the weight, and I was mountain biking, and I got down to this 208, 205, and I couldn't do, I, I just couldn't get past that, you know. But I said, you know, this is pretty good. I'm happy, and I'll just keep trudging along here. And um, I went back to my high school reunion, something I wouldn't have done if it wasn't for abstinence. I did a lot of my amends work that I, I wouldn't have done if it wasn't for abstinence. Um, I went back to a, a height. Did a lot of great things, a lot of great things. But remember, during this period in Overeaters Anonymous, from 91 until 99, I did not accept the, the, uh, uh, the tools, you know, and I didn't accept the sponsor. You know, I, I kind of had that, just that thing that just couldn't connect with someone. But it, really what it was was my willfulness. And uh, so I was cooking along in, uh, in, in program there, and uh, I got into this job. I'm a salesman, and I really like money. And uh, this was the best job I had ever had to date. And they were paying a lot of money, and I was pretty happy about that. And um, what happened was the company went public, and they said that, uh, and I'm not blaming this. This is, this is stuff that happens. You know, you just pick up the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times business. This is just standard operating procedure in the business world. But it was my first experience with it. And as an overeater, I just reacted with what I, with the known way, um, you know, anger. What does anger and resentment breed? Anger and resentment. And I didn't have a sponsor. And so they started, what they did said was we have to cut back. The board of directors said we have to cut back on the uh, commissions and paying you people too high. And I started getting resentments about that. And then there was a rival there I didn't like. And I was just, my spiritual condition, I was going to Vegas. I, I'd like to say this, I never left AA. Never left OA, but I, I like to say that I, I started to revisit the disco, and the disco means that I thought I could go out there and, uh, how do you say that, live vicariously around those haunts that I used to do when I was drinking, and I can't do that. So a lot of stuff, you know, if you're on a, just my foundation was, was, was eroding, and I'm very lucky that I didn't go out and get drunk. You know, I'm very, very lucky. Um, 
So it was a lot of things that were conspiring, and, and again, it was my spiritual condition wasn't where it should be. And there was a guy there, and I, I mentioned this, because every inventory I've ever done has always had a, um, a theme to it where I've learned a certain thing. One of them was jealousy. Another one was judging. This most recent one was gossip. And there was a guy there I didn't like, and he didn't like me. And uh, so here I have a head full of, of resentment. He came in with his group, and they seemed to be, in my view, were, getting, were being treated better and all that. And he one time said something about me. You know, it's what people do that don't like each other. They're always looking to, to pull the rug out wherever they can. And, and what he said was no big deal. But it was just like, you know, immediately I, was, I had to get revenge. Had to. Had to. And I knew something good about him. And I, I dropped the napalm, you know what I mean? I really hurt <laughs> And I was still being a jerk because when he put his fist up, and the manager starts getting nervous, and I said, you know, Bruce, sit down. He's not going to do a damn thing. And, you know, I was really looking to get him to make him more nuts. You know, I was still being a wise guy. But at the same time, I was also talking to myself, saying, you know, Walter, you created this whole situation. And, you know, this is the unmanageable life, you know, and, and this, is, this, is what, this is what I was up to. Oh, and so I'm out of control. You know, I'm not exactly acting with impeccability, integrity. So probably, let me roll back, six months before that, with all the stuff that was aggravating me and not doing like what other normal people had done. Other normal people had just said they saw the writing on the wall and left. I went to Jack in the Box, and I'll never forget it. I have an uncle who lives here in Venice, and I would come watch uh, Laker games with him once in a while, and I stopped at the Jack in the Box, and I had one milkshake. And that one became twice a week, three times a week, and then came back all my triggers. And I love, you name them, triple, double, extra. And I remember, you know, people I hear in the program, they say they'd always pretend they're ordering for a party. I didn't give a crap what these people thought I was ordering for. Just a party. Don't worry. You don't worry about your party. I'll worry about mine. <laughs> and my car kept getting smaller, and I kept getting bigger. And that's what happened. And one day in that jack-in-the-box, I screamed inside. It was a scream. I'll never forget it. And that's when the, that's after this almost fight and all that stuff with that guy. And I had to surrender. There's something inside. And when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And they did. They finally did the last thing. They just shaved the commission check, and I left. And I found a better paying job. I can't believe how serene this place has been where I've been working. I mean, it's just God relative to the insanity that I was was putting up with and trying to fight and change. You know. Um, and I was at an AA meeting, and I saw this person speak on, a, on the 11th step. And I said, uh, oh, they look But didn't even cross my mind that food would be their problem. If any, if I'm judging, which I'm very good at judging, I said, this probably runs too much or something. And then about a couple nights later, I saw this person speaking at a, the OA meeting on Reseda. Reseda Hall is primarily where I got abstinent. Uh, and I asked this person to be my sponsor. And we started, I started, made a beginning. And I also got involved in service. Now, service is not slimming. Service gets you to the meetings and opens you up to other people, and it's a very healthy thing to do. But the only thing that is slimming is abstinence and the steps. Um, but it is important, I think, to do service and give back. You know, and I do. When I'm asked, if I can, I will speak. You know, and if I'm asked to sponsor, male or female, I'll sponsor. And I'm, God, I'm just so much better as a sponsor than I was before my abstinence. And people come and go, and, you know, it's not my business. 
I feel sad when I see some people struggle, but I don't I don't call them like a mooney or try to control the situation. These are very healthy things for me. And uh, got time to do an inventory. And I did the inventory through the big book and the columns. And at the top of it, and I love to do this because, and I want to get into the steps here. Uh, my first inventory, all it was was a bunch of nonsense. I shared my deep, dark secret. And these inventories are very important to do. The steps are very important to do. And what the steps are all about are cleaning up our thinking. Our thinking controls our life just the way it does, and I never got that. I mean, so a lot of you I say, you know, no kidding. Well, I didn't know that. I just thought it was like the way the wind blew is how your life went. I, I had because one of the one of a, a old idea I had was no matter what, Walt, and this was a secret of mine, no matter what Walter did, no fruit would come from it. You know what I mean? My efforts were just, I didn't go to Yale, and I didn't go to football, didn't play football, so I must be not, not good enough. You know, and these are the thoughts that have to go. They just have to go. They have to go. This doesn't mean that I go to the other side and, and try to now, you know, become some superstar grandiose thing. No, but I just have a self-acceptance of myself, and I do what's in front of me. And I know now when I do put in honest effort, I usually get pretty good results. You know, and that's a miracle. And also, i got to tell you, way back in AA, uh, there is a higher power. There is something going on here that I can't explain and I like to share this long time ago. I was just could not function. I couldn't sell. And it was time that they were going to put me off the payroll. And that means they're firing you. But they said, we'll keep you around as a commission rep. And I probably could have held on for another three or four months, but I had to surrender. And it, it didn't come from me. All of a sudden, I was just calm. And I've never had money problems in program. I still, I still torture myself with what I think I should have. But when I really look on balance, my needs have all, my basic needs have always been met ever since I've been in the program. It's, it's, you know, it's just, that is just remarkable. And I needed that to rebuild my life. Because I really didn't start living in reality until I was 32. And I've got to tell you, my idea of reality at 32 and where it is at now at 48, way different. Because the road gets narrow and we keep growing. There's no graduation here. So um, that first inventory was about my deep, dark secret that I swore I'd tell nobody. And, you know, it was not a nice thing I did, but I did it, you know, and I shared it, and I found out I'm not the only human being who's done something like that, and uh, that I can make amends for that, and that I can I can heal from that. And that was remarkable. My next inventory was about, kept having recurring problems with a certain type of guy, men. And these were men that had homes, wives, guys who could get things done, you know. They weren't, they, they didn't start their life like I did, you know what I mean? And I got to see that, and I was always, like, in conflict with them. And when I saw that in the fifth step, I was like, Jesus, I knew what that was. And I could never have seen that. I would have just said, well, they're picking on me. They're not picking. I was always somehow finding a way to piss them off. And you, you, you get someone angry, they're going to come back at you. So that was, and that, that second inventory was the most powerful inventory because when I did that fifth step, I got to see that was a way of, that was a way of getting insight to me that I had never had. So now, now I'm making this new beginning in OA. Same thing, start that inventory process, share my deep, dark secret, calling my food in. That was very powerful for me, calling my food in. And I had no goals, you know, with the weight, all I wanted at the time. I wasn't, you know, I didn't go back to my top weight of 280, but I was certainly around 240, 250. I would not get on a scale. I just wouldn't. Scales, I still don't like scales. You know what I mean? It's just, they're just too full of reality. I just don't like the scale, you know, I just... It's just, I don't like the scale. That's, that's just, you know, but I have to, I weigh in now once a month. And I'm pretty fit, you know. 
and I don't say that to brag. I, I, I get emotional about this because if someone said, you know, Walter, do you think this, that, or the other thing? I said, well, I might have been able to achieve something like this if I was in high school on a track team, but I didn't have any goals, you know, and, and, and I have a really sound physical fitness program. I have my food is clean. You know, my biggest thing that's challenged me did raisins once in a while. You know, raisins. You know, not Haagen-Dazs. Haagen-Dazs was my master. It was my master, you know, and, and, and so it worked, you know. So by rededicating myself, I'm going to open up to questions here. To, you know, got to have a sponsor. Got to work the steps. You got to have a higher power. I don't know what that higher power is for you. You're not going to hear Helen Brimstone from me, you know, but something that's greater than yourself if it's just the group, uh, you know, and to give back and be willing to give back and listen. Um, because what goes around comes around. I very much believe in karma, you know, cause and effect. And what we give out, we get back. And, and I just look at my repeated inventories, and uh, as my mind cleans up, my life cleans up. And it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's remarkable. So I think I'll end here and, and uh, open it to questions. So. Before I can start speaking again. Have you ever relied on your higher power for something and then didn't quite or didn't get whatever it was that you said, you know, God, I rely on you for this and I'm caught in that? And what did you do? Have I ever relied on my higher power for something and not gotten it? You know, I'm going to have to say to that, no. I've relied on myself for a lot of things and not gotten them. But I've always had my needs met. You know, my needs met. I mean, I've never prayed. You know, like sometimes, yeah, I've used the higher power. I usually use the, my higher power, like I'm a salesman, and I ask him to help me to be skillful in dealing in an account or something, but it's, I've never, you know, that I'll be okay with a certain outcome, but I've never asked for a specific you know, I, I'm just trying to think honestly if I've ever done that. No, just to have my needs met, to be okay, but never I've never handed my higher power my goals. And what I do, if I do ask for things in prayer, if it be thy will, and I'm usually pretty good in, in, in accepting the outcome. I got sober, um, there was a woman I met out here who, like I said, I was five or six weeks into it, and she she got rid of me. And I've had since had relationships, but not a lot of not a lot of success. It's a, it's a uh, it's an aspiration of mine now. I pray for healthy intimacy, and truthfully, as I look back on it and just getting self honest, I, I wasn't. You know, you can always find someone out there, but. You know, not necessarily healthy, and I wasn't healthy enough. You know, so it's something I keep working on. But uh, uh, no, at the time I didn't. I did not have a, a relationship when I got in the program, and I certainly, uh, you know, maybe I could have had one at 280 pounds, and I'm, and I'm sure I could have. But you know, the problem is, it's my head. You know, at that weight, it's bad enough. I I, I meet. Uh, I, my head still does this. I met a very nice person. Roy knows about this. 
And man, the minute she told me where she went to school, I went to a whole other position. I, all of a sudden, I wasn't good enough. You know, where before that, I was feeling pretty damn good about things. And the minute I heard their credit, and it was nonsense. But that's what my head does. So, you know, with a head like that, I have to be very careful about, about relationship. Walter, did you find that along with the compulsive overeating that it also, um, you know, made you impulsive in other areas such as spending and things like that? Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I've been through the videos, I've been through books, you know, all kinds of stuff. You know, this is really a process of like uh, jack-in-the-box, you know, you put one thing down and something pops up, you know. And I have an exercise program now that has probably quelled a lot of that. But, yeah, I did expect that. Um, don't want to alarm our newcomer, but just warn, you know, that eating is not your problem, you know. It's not our problem, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's a symptom of our, of our problem, which is thinking. And there's all kinds of stuff that we're checking. Needless phone calls to people, just chatting, just, you know what I mean, just got to talk to someone because I just don't know what to do with myself, you know, and that's, that's diminished. Thank you again. <laughs> what do you do with boredom? With boredom? I'm actually keep myself pretty busy, you know. Um, I really have a full, you know, a full schedule, so... I, I filled my life with just a lot of, you know, hobbies and interests. Like, I, I'm very, very involved in, in yoga now. Uh, that takes up about five, probably about eight hours a week. Uh, I'm involved in meditation practice that takes two nights a week. You know, I have a full-time job. I'm involved in program, and I love to read. I'm a reader. You name it, I read it. I read. I just like to read, and I keep myself busy. I'm also involved in therapy. I'm in therapy once a week and with a group therapy. So, I'm, like I said, my, my work in progress. Yeah. Ask me how I felt about uh, working on the fourth or fifth step about feelings of shame. Uh, and guilt that came up. Well, the, the you know this is I've heard this. This is not my these are not my words, but I like to repeat them. Inventory takes about three years and two hours to do, and it's really the two hours that it's what it takes to do is the it's the thinking. What you know, what will so and so think of me? If can I really put this down? You know, and when you do, invariably you find you will find you're not unique. Other people have been through this. And I heard a woman say this at an AA meeting. Oh, God, this was a great, a couple of Fridays ago. She said, things grow in the dark. So while those feelings are uncomfortable, the shame and the guilt, they just delay your progress. Because once you let that stuff out, man, it is liberating. It is free. It's, it's, uh, there are no big deals. I would just caution on the fifth step that you just find someone with, with experience who have been through the steps and someone you can trust. You know, that's very, very important. I have never run into a, what you call a, a loose cannon who shares other people's fifth steps. But you want, you know, it's, it's, you just want someone who can take you through it. I mean, when I shared my deep, dark secret, that was really rolling the dice for me. Today, it's not a big deal. I was talking to a guy who asked me to be uh, his sponsor at the uh, birthday party. And 
got talking about stuff, and but voila, I shared mine, and he shared his, and it's like, oh, you know, where before I'd be like, well, man, you know, maybe we better get out in the woods about a hundred feet, a hundred miles from here. <laughs> you know, it's not like that. Good question. Um, the question was, uh, can I talk about uh, my abstinence today relative to what it was like before? Is that pretty much the gist? Mm -hmm. Well, when I first got into Overeaters Anonymous, it was three meals a day and nothing in between, and for me that was great, especially the emphasis on free because I was eating minimally at lunch. I was basically eating one humongous meal, and I was going to um, – these Swedish smorgasbords out on the valley there, you know, six, seven bucks all you could eat, you know. So for me, three meals a day was really key. Uh, and the other thing that I learned in that time, too, was I said to this guy, Ray, I said, Ray, but I have this ravenous appetite in the end of the day. And he says, you must set yourself in the morning uh, with a piece of fruit or some sort of fruit juice. And I still do that to this day. Even if I'm running late, I have at least an apple or an orange. And I, if I have a craving... I know it's more to do with emotions, you know. So I took better care of my car than I did my body, and it's not like that today. I would say my car and my body are on arm par. I would get, you know, I get the new car, and I would immediately go in, what is the octane of the gas, what type of oil should I be using? My body, I was clueless, but, man, it's, it's you know, you, we are what we eat. It's very important. And food for me today really is about fuel. Well, the second time around, when I made a, a, a beginning again with a sponsor and a sponsor that I really connect with, I basically used the gray sheet or the zone. I don't know if you've ever heard of zone. I'm not trying to promote that, but, but the zone is basically the gray sheet. And uh, I stay away from cheese. I stay away from all the triggers. I remembered my um, uh, in food inventory. And uh, also what really helped me to, to, to stick to that was calling my sponsor. And he would check me. On, on little days that I would take comfort in maybe quantity, you know, but it's very, very clean. Uh, you know, a typical lunch for me would be uh, chicken and broccoli, no rice. I won't eat white, white rice. I won't eat cheese. Um, I won't eat white bread. I eat this whole wheat bread, uh, Ezekiel, which has no, no uh, flour in it. I didn't know that flour turns to sugar. Pasta, I won't eat pasta. I didn't know that pasta turns into your into sugar in your body. Potatoes. I thought potatoes were fine as long as you kept the sour and cream and butter off. Found that that turns into sugar into your body. So if you learned, you know, I'm not a nutritionist. But that's all on the on the gray sheet. I think our bodies will respond. What, what's happened is we're out of sorts with our food. We're just like puppies. We just have to train ourselves to eat another way. And with the help of a sponsor, by calling the food in, I think you can really get yourself into any food plant. But trying to do it on myself, the diets on myself, I just could never. They don't last too long. So basically, my guide today is, is gray sheet. And I've recently kicked up uh, um, the fruit intake. You know, and that seemed to be intuitive. And I'll tell you something else. There's one thing I couldn't give up was coffee. I'm a coffee fiend. This is uh, an herbal tea I'm drinking. I was uh, a coffee-holic. You know, I'd start my day with a 24-ouncer, and I just, every once in a while, I'd want to give it up. You know, and I know I was using it as part of my abstinence. It was sort of a tool, but it's okay, you know. It's, 
And one day my body looked at it and said, no, not my mind, my body. You know, and I was like, thank you, God. And I haven't had this coffee now in about four months. You know, and that's just what's the road gets narrow. And I, I, I just I don't know what will happen. My food seems to be getting cleaner. And, you know, it's funny. I, I, I have well, I get challenged emotionally and stuff, you know, and I think about food. But I have this other voice inside that says it doesn't work. You know where you'll be on the other side, you know. So hopefully that answers your question. Great question. Um, the question was how I deal with body image. Can I be perfectly honest with you? I think I'm fat today. I got fat head and I have to watch it. I carry a journal with me. Uh, any unprofitable thought I put down about myself, I'm stupid, I'm fat. It's too late. I blew my opportunity. Any of those thoughts. And body image is just, you know, and I, I, I look at myself still uh, as if I'm a fat man. And I know I'm not because of what the scale says and what my pant size and, you know, my clothes size. But the mind uh, takes a lot longer to heal. The physical physical recovery will become fat, will come much faster than the mind. And that's why we have to keep coming back. Because what we're dealing with is our mind, and our mind is vast. And those belief systems, I mean, I've been telling myself I'm fat since I'm four, five, six. That's a lot of practice. It just isn't, just I wish it would turn around. And maybe it will. Maybe maybe my higher power will. Like the coffee was taken, like the other, it, maybe that thought will be taken, but it hasn't. And I have to be very vigilant about those thoughts. That's a very good question. Um, I am. I'm trying to. <laughs> the question was, am I resentful at the positive attention I'm getting now because I'm 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 at a. Uh, what society says is a more desirable weight versus when I was 280 pounds and how I was ignored. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, uh, no, whew, how would I answer that? You know, whew, California for me has been... <laughs> all, well, this is, you'll understand what I mean. It's been all about recovery for me out here. And it's funny you guys say this because... I just got deluged with a bunch of emails from, from friends from back east, women, that weren't interested in me, you know. But they saw me in 94, and you get some of the, you know, I was, they were more flirtatious than they had been in the past. But they're married now and stuff, and it's, you know, I, I'm probably resentful toward my friends of origin, friends of where I grew up. Because here in California, I've been in the 12-step programs, is really, and I remember sending us an email. This, this lady friend of mine, Pat, is, is just a tremendous friend. And uh, she said, Walter, tell me about it. Do you have wife, kids? And I was like, God dang, this is a question you don't want to get from a friend back east. That you know. But I said, you know, told her what I've been up to and that basically my focus has been recovery. Not averse to the idea, 
but you, you know, I accept what reality de you know deals. So, not out here, but I don't say you know I don't feel I get a lot of attention now. You know what I mean? There's you know I, I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of lady friends that I never had before. Um, I, I've become more skillful, comfortable with myself. I can't say that I'm resentful. Uh, you, you know, people. I don't. I, I, uh, you know what? Yes, I am. There was one guy. He just, you know, I had to think here. I didn't mean to stutter. There was a guy, and this would be the worst type of guy for me to run into. He was a uh, quarter, uh, a wide receiver for Alabama, and that's big time football, big time. And his nickname for me, uh, when he first met me out here, I'm, I'm an air freight salesperson, was Baby Huey. Yeah, and you know that was pretty painful. Well, fast forward now. I can outrun him and outjump him. So life's a very funny thing, you know. It just we live we live in truth. I believe this. We live in truth, and we what what do the promises say? Uh, we're just not going to care about that stuff, really. It all gets balanced out as long as we live in truth and follow these steps in all our affairs to the best of our abilities. It just seems to really balance the scales. And I don't say anything because I, far step seven tells me I better be humble, because you see Walter out here bragging. I'm headed for a big fall. But I get a little chuckle inside when I see some of these guys that used to be, you know, tremendous. I mean, tremendous athletes. And I, I just don't understand how they could let that go, but they did, you know. But that's not for me to decide what's right or wrong. I'm just very grateful that I have a, a, a level of health today that I really thought I wasn't going to see that. I, I just thought I, it was too late for me. I just thought it was gone. And I'm not certainly in a position to, to go call the Raiders and say, you know, does Rod Woodson need a backup? <laughs> but you know what? If I'm around those type of people or whatever, I'm not like this, you know, I'm hanging my head low and all that. You know, I'm in a better place. But, yeah, there are some people that I was resentful for and toward because of comments like that. But it all, it has a way. We, we work these, these principles in all our affairs. It works out. And the promises, read the promises. I'll show you the promises. Talk to me at the end of the meeting. I'd love to show you that section in the big book, and you can see what happens when we work. Which is, in fact, all you need to do is work the first nine steps, and you start realizing the promises. And that's it. Thank you.